this episode, I speak to Julie Beeling, the author of Beneath Sheep's Clothing, The Communist Takeover of Culture in the USSR, and Parallels in Today's America. She's also the writer and director of the documentary film based on the book, which features James Lindsay and Trevor Loudon. How are you? Good, good. Just a bit of a whirlwind, but doing well. I, I saw that the trailer, I guess there was a copyright dispute over the initial trailer. That's unfortunate. That was a good trailer. It's still up on Rumble. And oh, really? Think, yeah, it's a gray area. We had the rights to use the version that we used, but the um, the uh, Warner Brothers, I guess, owns the rights to the original version of Creep. And they got lots of leftists complaining to them about us. Um, so uh, I wondered if that's what happened. Yeah, so it was political. So they were able to get it off of X and and off of YouTube. We could take them to court. They we could do a court case about it, but. But the damage is already done, as my filmmaker says. You know, at least a million people saw that trailer, and now they will associate uh-huh. our film with they'll associate creep with our film, and uh-huh. that was the whole point. So you, so you do still have that trailer up? Yeah, it's on Rumble. And could Facebook. you send me a link? Uh, Absolutely. After this, I'd, I'd love to uh, repost that and share it to people. Yeah, we also have the intro. I just posted late last night the intro to the film, which is just as good as the trailer, if not better, um, is also up everywhere as of late last night. Okay, great. Yeah, please. Um, if I could get those. So tell me about the film and what got you interested in what got you into making in the first place? Well, I mean, it's not something I ever would have thought I would have done. The way I got into any of this was I was a missionary in Russia in the late nineties. And, uh, then I came back to the U S and I ended up going to graduate school and getting a dual master's in Russian language and literature and Russian and East European studies. And I, I ended up writing my master's thesis on underground Christian movements in the Soviet Union and their survival tactics and the tactics of the Soviet state to try to dismantle Christianity. So but I was able to go back to Russia um, in 2002 uh, for, to research for my thesis and, um, you know, meet with Christians of diff- different groups, um, some Russian Baptists, Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, that the, the Pentecostals were actually still operating underground. And I had kind of a chance meeting with someone who was a part of the exact group I was researching. And I was able to go and to their church service and meet with some of their people and get some um, information about their history that I was able to translate from my thesis. So but I wrote my thesis back between 2002 and 2004. And defended it in 2004. And like, I kind of had this feeling that there was a purpose for me to write. I actually didn't have to write a thesis for that degree. I could have just done the comprehensive exams. And I don't like writing, actually. Kind of hate it. So uh, it felt like there was a greater purpose for me to, I don't know, it felt like maybe there was some lessons that I could learn from the Soviet and the Russian Christians that maybe would apply to America someday. And turns out that's probably true. So, but I set my materials aside thinking that someday I would get back to it in some form. And then in 2008, there was something on the news that caught my attention. It was, it was the treatment of an unpopular fringe Christian sect in America that they were, they had a militarized raid upon their premises and they had 400 children, their 400 children taken from them by the government without due process and without any evidence that any of the children were under um, threat of abuse or anything um, 
happening imminently. And so that caught my attention. And that, because that was one of the tactics that the Soviets used, is they had heavy persecution of the fringe Christian groups, including removing their children and um, putting them in, in atheistic state run boarding schools. And they didn't do that to all of them. They did that. They picked out on the fringe Christian groups. So if we backtrack a little bit in Russian history, if we if we look back to let's say 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, they they went hardcore against the, the Russian Orthodox Church primarily in the clergy. They were executing, torturing, imprisoning clergy, um, and then it went, spread to all the churches, and then. By the end of World War II, the Soviets changed their tactics against the churches because they found that just wholesale persecution of Christians was breeding a lot of underground religious activity. So they switched up their tactics and they stopped persecuting all the Christians. They just kept their heavy-handed um, you know, imprisonment and raids on meetings and raids on homes and take your children and we might torture you. We're going to put throw you in a psychiatric prison and forcibly treat you with psychotropic drugs. They kept that just for the fringe groups, which was um, everyone considered to be cults, by the way, in the Soviet Union. The Baptists, Pentecostals, Seventh-day Adventists, and Jehovah's Witnesses that were unregistered with the government, they were all considered to be cults, dangerous cults. And so the Soviet populace didn't have a problem with them being persecuted. And then with the treatment that the, the mainstream Christians got, was infiltration. And the Soviets infiltrated the churches with KGB agents posing as clergy. And it was so bad that at the, at the in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed, the patriarch of the of the Russian Orthodox Church was a KGB agent who had infiltrated decades before. And like it it was like <laughs> documented. So, um I, anyways, after I saw what happened with, it was the, the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Mormons in 2008 in Texas, when they had their children taken, they had this raid and this, you know, not like I, I agree with everything from the FLDS, not, not at all, but I, I saw that treatment. I looked closer and I saw all the other tactics that I'd researched for my thesis happening in America. And I was shocked to see that there was actually a literal communist infiltration of America's churches that had begun. It's been a century now that century ago that that began. So that was the, that was the uh, framework for my book beneath sheep's clothing and how this has um, become a documentary uh, is a whole other story with the, um, the night that I published self published my book on Amazon. I thought I was going to sleep well for the first time in a while it had been 20 years from start to finish that I started the research for my thesis to where I'm now publishing this book. It's like, wow, you know, I've done my part. This is going to be great. Now I can move on. Um, except I did not sleep well that night. I was up till somewhere around four in the morning. And I was seeing in my mind's eye, I was seeing principles and concepts from my book in like a cinematic format. And it felt like I was being shown that was the next step for me to take. So I, I said a prayer and I said, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, then you're going to have to send me someone who can work with with video like that. I wasn't even thinking documentary. I was just thinking maybe some like YouTube videos or something. But I was contacted a month later by a documentary filmmaker who wanted to discuss the possibility of turning my book into a documentary. So I, uh, he, and we had a lot of mutual friends. He, we were, I was actually a Facebook friend of his. I don't even know how I'd never met him before, but we, um, he reached out to me. I met up with him a couple months later when I was, um, in his area where he lives in Utah. And, uh, 
we decided that we were going to go for it. I told him I didn't have any money. Sorry, I, I don't know how we can make a film with I don't have any money. He's like, well, let's just let's just start taking steps in that direction. The money will come. And it took about a year and we did um, find an investor for our film. And, and it's been a rush to finish filming in the, the fall of last year. And we we did have three live premieres this month in January, but we decided to put in some more time and money in the film to polish it up to for maximal impact. And so it's going to be uh, at this point, probably uh, mid to late March uh, that we're going to have the online premiere for Beneath Sheep's Clothing, the documentary. Mm, looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are some of the uh, methods that Christians used in the Soviet Union to protect themselves or conceal themselves? How did they survive? Yeah. <clears throat> well, calling them underground Christians is probably not the, the, the right term because they often did not conceal themselves. I mean, mm -hmm. they were often just out there just doing their thing in the open um, it, without regard to what it would cost them. Um, what was done underground was more, um, there were some that had underground printing presses. Um, so only the, the, uh, registered churches that were registered with the government and like fully infiltrated, they were the only ones allowed to have Bibles printed and hymnals and things like that. And so these clandestine Christians or unregistered Christians, they had to either hand copy their, um, Bibles and hymnals and various other books to share with, with each other and to try to proselytize, which they did, they, all of them did. Or um, they had, some of them literally had like underground bunkers with printing presses where they would print materials and then they would have to hide the materials. Um, then they would sometimes, I know Jehovah's Witnesses were kind of famous for sneaking in uh, religious material to the gulag to prisoners in the gulag and sometimes I, I i remember that they would like copy it onto little like teeny tiny little like not even not microscopic obviously but teeny tiny little booklets that i guess people would have to use a magnifying glass to read and they would they would have people come in and um smuggle that type of religious material in um i mean they did some of them did have their church meetings. They would, they would go into the woods in the summertime and, you know, have their church meetings out there in the woods, or sometimes they would have church meetings at very odd hours at different people's homes, let's say 11 PM or, you know, whatever odd hours. And then they would actually sometimes say, Oh, we're just having a birthday party. So if like, the KGB tries to raid. Oh, it's it's my daughter's birthday. We're just having a birthday party. So they had lots of birthday parties for everyone in the faith um, as an excuse to meet because it was illegal to teach your children. It was illegal to um, to teach children religion um, at this point um, after World War II. It was illegal to bring them to church. It was illegal to teach them to pray. They could have their children taken from them, and they many of them did. And so they would have to, you know make it look like it was just, oh, an innocent party. Um, other than that, um, they really didn't try to hide. They they tried to to spread their faith. Hmm. And what are the ways in which you, you think that there is some level of communist infiltration in the United States? Other than, I suppose, there's the, the case of the fundamentalist Mormons having their kids taken away. But was this 
Uh, this was done because the government was concerned about child abuse. What was the ostensible uh, reason given? Yeah. So, <clears throat> so those three tactics that I looked at in my thesis, <clears throat> I should say that I discovered that were the three major tactics of the Soviet state to destroy Christianity. One was anti-religious propaganda combined with pro, pro-Soviet, pro-communist propaganda broadcast throughout all the media, throughout the education, throughout the arts. It was the only message that was allowed to be broadcast. Number two, persecute the religious fringes. Heavy-handed, very heavy-handed persecution. <clears throat> Militarized raids, accusing them of child abuse so they could take their kids. It was considered abusive to teach your child to pray. That was they they put that in their bucket with child abuse there in the Soviet Union. The third tactic, infiltrate the churches and change them, water them down from within. So all three of these tactics are in America. And uh, the first one, um, as far as anti-religious, pro-socialist, pro-communist propaganda, um, part of that also includes um, the purposeful um, subversion of, of sexual morals in America. And so having that in media, I mean, Hollywood was, was infiltrated by communists pretty much right from the get go. So, and McCarthy tried to expose that and he did expose it to a certain degree, but they kind of just hid themselves better. So a more, the moral degradation of America, the purposeful moral degradation through morally degrading our media is part of the communist infiltration. Um, but you also can just look at the treatment of Christians in uh, mainstream, uh, you know, television and movies over the last couple of decades. It's not exactly very kind. Uh, you know, you've you've got, you know, Christian clergy are almost always portrayed as abusive. And yeah, there are abusive Christian clergy, but that's not the majority. Um, and Christians portrayed as stupid naive, um, authoritarian. And yeah, there, there can be some truth to that, but there's not, there's no positive um, portrayal of Christians, except now in, in media created by Christians. Um, So you have that, and then you do have the promotion of different things in addition to loosening of sexual morals. Um, Situation ethics is a, is a, is a principle that is very closely correlated with communism, where you can justify doing bad things if you're doing it for a good cause. That's very much what communists do. And with communism, you can do, you can commit genocide if you're doing it in the name of helping the oppressed. And they often do commit genocide in the name of protecting the oppressed. But in our, in our media and our heroes in our television and movies, you've seen more and more of this over the last few decades of you know, the hero, it's okay that they do the X, Y, and Z, X, Y, Z bad thing, because they're actually trying to help the little guy. Um, and then you do have, um, we do have the infiltration of education, um, starting with universities decades ago, and now K K through 12 education, we're in the end stages of the communist subversion of public education for children. Hmm. It does seem as if there's a, a, um, I mean, if you were to go back, I suppose, to the era of McCarthy, I, you know, there there was excess there. But then there were also examples of actual communists or people who were at least sympathetic to communism. Oh, yeah. Arthur Miller was brought before uh, McCarthy and refused to name names and was celebrated as a hero for refusing to name names. And there is some honor in that. But 
I think he was about as close to a communist as you can get without actually coming out and saying, I'm a communist. Uh, and he was asked about this later in life. And I mean, he essentially just, I think, as you said, uh, learned to be be quiet about it. A little more discreet. Yeah. 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 But it's not to say that that these activities didn't exist. It's not to say that McCarthy, despite his excesses, was not on to anything. I think he was on to something. I think he was aware of, of something. He may have he took it too far. But at that time, if you if if I had been living at that time and someone had said something like this to me, I think I would have been incredulous. I would have dismissed it. And I don't think I would have been able to come up with much evidence of deliberate uh, actions being taken by supposed communists to subvert our society from within. And we've reached a point now where I think we've let this slide to where they have been emboldened and there, it is more obvious now. It is quite – now I can pull up papers of academics talking about the need to destroy Western civilization, the need to uh, decenter or, um, uh, you know, basically um, – well, I suppose decenter is the most common term. But anything that is normal. Yeah. Quote unquote, like heteronormativity must be decentered. Uh, even things that you, any anything that is considered in any way, I suppose, sacred is a bit of a religious term, but that is, I'll use it, sacred, because anything that is sacred or untouchable is in some way deemed to be upholding the status quo. That's part of and the moral that, hegemony of America that has to be subverted in order for yeah. communism to take hold. Yeah. And that is, and that, and that in turn, uh, maintains and reinforces the hegemonic system of capitalism. So right. no matter what it is, if it's something that you're not supposed to question or or subvert, that's what you should aim for next. One of these that I recently came upon that was just uh, very disturbing to me was that one of the categories of sacrality is the category of the child. Yeah. And so you do I, – I have actually read academic papers now where you have people arguing that, well, this whole idea about how you shouldn't have sex with children, this is really just tied into Western capitalist Christian – you know. So there are academics now. One of them at least that I know of lost his job when some of his research was exposed and there was obviously outrage over it. But he was essentially arguing that you know, there's nothing wrong with pedophilia. Yep. This is just capitalism and, and Western civilization that's telling us these things. Yeah, don't be so uptight. Come on. Come on, America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these this, this subversive, deliberately, consciously subversive um, playbook is not – we're no longer at a point where we can close our eyes and hold our noses and pretend like it's not happening. And yet so many of us are still doing that. Yeah. What do you think is required for uh, – I mean, in addition to efforts like your own, obviously, what do you think is required for people to wake up? Do you think that we're, it's going to have to get much worse before it gets better or do you think that we are now maybe in a, a transition? I seem to think that we are in a bit of a transition and I think that part of it might be October 7th. A lot of people are suddenly shaken awake by some of the events and some of the – the rot that we've seen in some of these protests? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think we have a good shot at waking up, having a mass awakening to the point that the agendas within the schools and churches can be nullified. I mean, for them to be nullified completely, 
within this year might not happen, but we need a, we need a mass awakening ASAP. And, um, you know, we're not going to be able to prevent all of these agendas from being, um, they're already in, they're already, you know, in motion, but I think we can prevent some of the worst possible outcomes if enough people wake up and we're just like with masking and, and vaccine mandates, enough people are like, just not going to play that game again, that, that those agendas are essentially nullified. Like they're going to, they're enough of us are just not going to wear a mask and we're just not taking whatever vaccine they say that we have to take. And we're just not playing along with medical tyranny. Um, and so we need that type of mass awakening ASAP. I mean, we have to deal with our cognitive dissonance. It's very difficult. Like I look back at my public school experience in America and it was good. I had a good public school experience. My mother <clears throat> was an educator. She was actually a substitute teacher for many years. My sister is a teacher currently, unfortunately, in California. And um, unfortunately, isn't she thinks I'm insane. But she teaches social and emotional learning and ethnic studies that, that look really nice on the outside. And she's, my sister's a good person. But my sister's probably not going to be waking up anytime soon. But but we need we need this mass awakening where enough people are saying we're taking our kids out of the schools. You either pull the Marxist crap out now, or we're, we're not we're not playing that game. And same thing with the churches, for people to say to their church, "Hey, this take this communist Marxist woke stuff out of our churches. Get the government out of our churches, or we're just going to go do our own church over here." And um, you know, I don't really like the idea. I don't want to tell people to, you know, fracture and splinter their churches, but it's at the same time, we need a decentralization of power with, um, with faith. We need to get connect individuals back with God. In fact, the reason I did my thesis is I was trying to find which traits and which, um, tactics, of the different unregistered um, underground Christians, which were most associated with success. And what I found was most associated with success was the decentralized church, more highly centralized. The church was um, in the Soviet union, the easier it was for that church to be demolished. The less centralized it was, the more it thrived because individuals had their own connection with God. They had their, and they were given their own direction to figure out how to, build the kingdom of God. And it was actually the Pentecostals in the Soviet Union. They literally told their members, you ask God what you're supposed to do to build the kingdom of God, and then you go do it. They didn't need a leader to tell, to tell them what to do. So when the leaders were arrested, it didn't really impact the church that much. And if, and if the church was infiltrated, it didn't impact the church because the individual members were empowered to do, to follow their own direction from God. So we do need that here in America. We need individuals not to blindly follow any church leader, no matter how well-intended that church leader is. Um, we need our own individual connection with God. And with education, we need to decentralize that. And if we have, that means I homeschool my son personally. I have a nine-year-old who I homeschool, and it's not easy. Um, we need micro schools. Not everyone can homeschool, but we need to pull our children out of this beast. It's not just centralized at the state or federal level, but it's actually at the global le level. The UN and UNESCO have their tentacles in our schools here in our local areas here in America and throughout the world. 
They, they want to control the ideology of the entire world. And so they are grooming the children of the entire world to go along with woke Marxism and the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals as the new religion. And uh, if we don't want that, we have to, we need to pull our kids out of that. This is interesting. The clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson talks a lot these days about the um, the, <clears throat> the meaning crisis that we're currently facing. And uh, alongside that, the, the neuroscientist Sam Harris is currently working on a project for objective morality, a, a system of morality based on objectivity that isn't tied to religion. But I think both of these things can be traced back to a prediction that Friedrich Nietzsche made long ago, that uh, when he famously said, God is dead, what he was saying is that what he was, well, he wasn't simply commenting that, oh, people don't believe in God like they used to. He was actually saying something much deeper than this. He was saying, you take away God, you're going to take away all the things that are built upon that. And you're not going to be able to replace them very easily. You're going to be left with things like moral relativism, and Sam Harris is trying to sort of reconstruct uh, uh, an objective morality that doesn't need God for its basis. It's it's very hard. I mean, as much as religious people have to contend with the problem of evil and how do you have evil in a world where you have a good – atheists have to contend with the problem of good, which is how do you how do you construct good based on what when you, when you don't have anything? This is something that uh, Jordan Peterson has also – I saw he recently was talking about even science itself is something that – began to crumble when you removed God because a lot of scientific principles, fundamental, such as uh, the idea that you can understand the universe and that doing that is a good thing, those are not scientific assertions. Those are based on something greater than science, and yet they are fundamental to science. So once you pull that out from underneath, once you pull that rug out from underneath the science, you may not notice it at first, but fast forward 50 years and you're going to start to see some, and we're seeing it now. We we see what's happening with scientific claims or quote unquote scientific claims or the state of our scientific understanding in uh, American universities today where things that if you had told me when I was 20 or even 30, uh, you know, in a couple of years, people are going to be debating whether or not this is a fact. <laughs> whether or not there's male and female. I have actually my undergraduate degrees in biology. And mm. so I am a biologist, I guess I can say. So I can say, you know, there are male and female to binary gender. And anyways, I was, yeah, it's, it's insane that now that is called under question. Yeah. And this is all, I think this is all what there, there's various attempts now to sort of like recreate the community or recreate uh, moral systems of value or to recreate, all, you know, or to reestablish scientific, to recreate all of these things that have been, that have started to decay as um, as Nietzsche predicted when the foundation of these things was 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 religion. Even the sciences grew yeah. out of out of uh, theo theological study originally. A lot of them just were branches that just you know then became independent, and we're now trying to like put the pieces back together, but. It's Humpty Dumpty. I mean, you can't really put the pieces back together without. I mean, we're 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 trying, but I think it's the same. I think it's the same fight that we're seeing now in America between. I suppose I would simplify it and say the faithful and the communists. It's the simple way to put it, and like it's the same fight that we saw in Russia, is it not? And this seems like we're 
history is repeating itself. And I don't know that we've learned uh, the lessons that we should have learned from the Soviet Union. No. And like, this is what I feel out of everything in my book, in my documentary that, that really lights a fire under me the most is to educate more Americans on what the Soviet Christians went through. And Uh it was horrific. I spent two years in up to here in primary sources for my thesis and it was devastating it was absolutely devastating to research what happened with them it was at 12 to 20 million they don't even know 12 to 20 million christians in the soviet union were arrested persecuted executed imprisoned for their for their faith um it's staggering and the the human toll of communism as well is another thing out of everything that i share it's absolutely devastating. And of course, we didn't learn about any of this. I never learned about this in school. I learned about the Holocaust, but nothing about, you know, nothing about any of the Soviet or communist dictators. And I think it's crucial for Americans and Westerners to understand this history, to understand the brutality, to understand the scale of the brutality, and to understand the tactics. I mean, I I can't like... It's been a long time since I've watched TV, um, but like just watching mainstream news in the last 10 years, it's like, I feel like I'm in the Soviet Union. You know, it's just unreal what these people are saying and the propaganda that they're spewing and, and it, it happened gradually. And so Americans were conditioned to accept it. But once you see what the, what the communist playbook is like, whether it's to, to subvert education or religion, or just to subvert society, you can't unsee it. And so, I mean, I, I hope that I am doing my part to help wake people up, but it's going to really yes, indeed. I was actually going to ask you about what, about what you do with your own children with regard to the education system, but you answered that already. You, mm-hmm. uh, and is that what you would recommend for other people or are yeah. you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put your kids in the public school system at this point? No. No, my in, son, in any state, in any state, no, or is it because no. it's clearly worse in some states than in others? I think. Well, I mean, ironically, Florida is better. I used to live in Florida. That's where I went to college. I lived in Florida for many years. So, and now I live in Utah, which one would think would be more conservative than Florida, but it's definitely not anymore. I live in one of the most conservative parts of Utah. Um, so I only have one child. I have a nine-year-old son. I did start him off in kindergarten at a charter school. And then I pulled him out. He 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 was in kindergarten the COVID year, that mm-hmm. was interrupted with COVID. And then I homeschooled him after that because I wasn't going to send my six year. He was six years old at the time. I was not going to send a six year old to school seven hours a day in a mask. And then, ironically, I had to put him back in school when to finish my book in early 2022. And as I was finishing my chapters on the communist subversion of education, that was interesting. Um, but no, I have no plans on putting him back in the teachers. My son had great teachers. I think the administrators at the school, he went to two different schools. We lived in two different places. I think they were good, well-intended people. I think the majority of people in education are good, well-intended people, but the schools of education were subverted. According to James Lindsay, it was 1992 where that was the year that basically all of the schools of education were subverted to a Marxification of education. So you have that factor, but then you also have, of course, there's woke activist teachers, probably in almost every school. 
Um, I can see the high school in this small, very small town where I live. There's 20,000 people in the town I live in. We have a, the high school honors English, like senior honors English teacher is an operative. Like I can, she totally is. Um, I had some run-ins with her at a school board meeting a couple of years ago and online. She has this whole army of people behind her. These people don't even live here, like supporting her online. And like, mm-hmm. I understand online marketing and like they had a marketing campaign and this was to push the queer Marxist agenda. Um, um, the social and emotional learning has got to be deleted from the schools. It is it is woke Marxism. It's it's deleting. It is replacing Judeo-Christian ethics as the foundational ideology of our children, and it's replacing it with woke Marxism. Well, can and you explain what that is? Yeah. Social, emotional learning. Yeah. So it's in something like 95 plus percent of all the schools now in America and charter schools, too, is in both of my son's schools. and it's these videos like it started out just as a way to teach kids supposedly just to learn, have good social skills and, and, and to emotionally regulate themselves. But then in 2020, they changed it to what they called transformative social and emotional learning and transformative social and emotional learning is teaching social skills and emotional regulation through the lens of equity and racial equity and just equity period. And it's, so it's diversity, equity, and inclusion <clears throat> is the foundation of social and emotional learning. Diversity, equity, and inclusion sound really great, but they are communist. Equity is explicitly communist because equity is that shares have to, have to be divided up equally amongst the populace, whether that is social status, whether it's money or whatever the case may be. Equity is equal outcomes. It's communist. Diversity Real diversity is great, but diversity under their terms means if you do not have the woke Marxist critical consciousness, then you are not diverse. It doesn't matter if you're black. You can be like you can be like a black trans male, but if you do not have the woke critical consciousness, you are not diverse. Your voice does not count. Sit down and shut up. And inclusion means we will include all the people who have the woke critical consciousness, and we will exclude everyone else. And when you say critical consciousness. Mm -hmm. Critical consciousness means to view the world through the lens of um, critical race theory. It's it's Marxist. It's the oppressed Mm. versus oppressor construct. It's viewing all of everything in the world through oppressed versus oppressor. This is why everything is racist. Everything is homophobic because these people... I call it the woke goggles. They put on the woke goggles or the woke goggles were placed on them during some sort of, you know, brainwashing sessions that they've gone through. And they can only see oppressed versus oppressor that nothing else can explain anything else in society or the world. Everything is only through that single lens. And you have to tear down the oppressor, um, which is Marxism, which prepares society for communism. It's incredibly cynical worldview. So yeah. for instance, like critical race theory, which evolved out of some of the traditions in critical legal studies, I think that critical legal studies, there was something to be said for the flaws of legal formalism and the idea that the justice system is, that it somehow is some perfect machine of justice. And of course, that's not entirely true. Of course, there are mistakes, but I think that the system still strives for justice and fails. But 
as I often tell my friends, every correction is an overcorrection and critical yeah. legal studies was a needed correction, but it was definitely an overcorrection in the sense that it basically said, you know what? There's this whole justice thing is a racket. It's a scam. So what is really happening here? And again, this goes to your point about, you know, Marxist analysis. One of the fundamental points of Marxist analysis is to break everything down into an analysis of power. Yeah. And so the legal system, what's really happening here is we're not we're not fighting for justice. This is just power. And who has the power? White right. people have the power. And they're using the justice system to oppress us. So what we should do is use the justice system to push back in, in the name of our people. So let's say in the name of black people. And it doesn't really matter whether this is in the name of justice because that's a fool's errand anyway. And it's this deep cynicism, not just with regard to the justice system, but with regard to, well, of course, capitalism, but also democracy and and uh, racial colorblindness, for instance, just yeah. completely cynical about that. It'll never work. It's just racist. What we really need to do is have is just be constantly um, color focused, right. color obsessed. That's the way. To, and it's just a profoundly I find it to be a profoundly cynical view about everything that I don't know if it's my. Uh, upbringing, but I do see that as being tied into atheism. And that's not to say that all atheists are profoundly cynical, right? but there is something there, there to the, the, the cynicism and the belief that this is all just flawed humans running around in the mud, making a mess of things. There isn't really any higher truth or higher justice or higher, you know, and that is in direct opposition to what I would call, I suppose, the faithful community. But Again, this is not something that is exclusive to people of faith. It doesn't have to be. It's just general patterns that I see that this is the battle being waged. Yeah. Is between these profound cynics. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's even worse than that because communism and Marxism, wherever they, you know, take hold, they operate like a religion. And they they huh. indoctrinate their it's a cult. They use cult indoctrination tactics, and they're using the cult indoctrination tactics on our children in our schools. And the teachers administering these curricula don't even know that's what they're doing in most cases. And so it's it's very, very um, crafty. Where I live here in Utah, they, they passed a law uh, in 2022 for mandatory ethnic studies curricula, the K through 12 education. I have seen the curriculum that they're going to be, uh, that the, the high school students are supposed to be getting. It is 100% critical race theory with some queer and gender theory thrown in for good measure under the guise of, oh, we're going to learn about cultures, but really we're going to brainwash you uh, into the critical consciousness. So along with the social and emotional learning, um, which again is all about DEI, is is like the new foundation of ideology, along with the ethnic studies. And it's not just like one class. This, the social and emotional learning and the ethnic studies, teachers are being trained to integrate them into all subjects, into math, into, of course, language arts, of course, into history, in, into every subject. I've even like social and emotional learning in, in PE. And it can look good because, oh, we're teaching children resilience. But at its foundation, it is an inversion of what America stands for. It's an inversion of, of Judeo-Christian ethics. I'm not even going to say Christianity, because even if you're not Christian, Judeo-Christian ethics 
I don't think anyone can argue that is part of the reason why America and the West have have thrived and also individual rights and and um individual justice and um a meritocracy these things are being removed from our children's ideology even if it's what the parents believe most of the parents being replaced with woke marxism and sorry marxism leads to communism and communism is the deadliest form of government in the world's history so thanks but no thanks so 100 million and counting 100 million victims of communism that's the tally it's it's just a bloodbath Nothing has ever killed that many people. And I, I actually spoke to the uh, – I interviewed the head of the Victims of Communism Memorial Fund on this mm. show. If, you, if you're interested, you can look in the archives. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things that she told me was that, you know, that 100 million, that number, uh, that's, that's at least because historians are always – uncovering archives, digging deeper. Every new generation of historians wants to wants to dig deeper and, and produce new uh, scholarship on the matter. And in doing so, that number goes up oh, yeah. and up and up. It's not going down. It's going up. So in 10 years, you know, even – and this is not even counting the, the people who are being killed today. No, no, that's the 20th century. That's lowball numbers for 20th century. Yeah, and that number will go higher as we uncover more and more information. Like right now, you know, I mean, Russia's sort of a shit shitstorm right now. But you know, in the future, if we do again have access to the Soviet vaults and we can go in there and we can do some more scholarship again, who knows what numbers we'll pull out and what the what the new figure will then become? But that number is always going up as our scholarship improves, and it's one hundred million right now. It's it's unimaginable. I mean, fascism is something like 36 million. And that is almost universally understood as, well, I suppose in certain Middle Eastern circles, uh, it's seen as a good thing perhaps, but almost universally understood as utter evil. Right. And then you, you're you like, okay, 36 million, utter evil, 100 million? No, that's, uh, maybe that's just misunderstood. Maybe we should give it another try. Yeah, and it's 100 million. It's, it, it... You know, I had a really interesting conversation with ChatGPT several months ago about communism. And ChatGPT was trying to convince me that, oh, but lots of these people died in wars. I'm like, no, no, no. We're subtracting the war deaths. Why are there so many deaths under communist regimes? It's the ideology. Mm. Here's an interesting experiment for listeners. I recently had a conversation with ChatGPT where I asked it about the numbers killed under exactly the point I just made. Uh, the numbers killed under fascism, and it was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. How many killed under communism? And it suddenly started giving me this very nuanced answer. Well, you know, this is a very complicated and delicate subject, and uh, you know, people are easily offended. We have to be careful when we're discussing them. I was like, that's strange. You didn't give me that answer when I asked you about fascism. What's going on here? <laughs> and I tried asking it a few different ways. I was like, okay, well, how many people did Hitler kill? How many people did Lenin kill? Let's do it like this. It was difficult to get a straight answer uh, that was consistent for both sides. Mm-hmm. And I found that very disturbing. Yeah. Well, didn't I mean, they came out by the Biden administration that that the AI have to they have to promote DEI. So they have to have woke critical consciousness that the, the AI does or else it's not going to be legal to have that AI in America. Oh, I haven't heard about this. That was that was probably about three months ago. Three. Yeah. Ish. I think Kamala Harris was the one who announced it. So now you're telling me now we have woke AI. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, wow, it's a brave new world. Um, you know, I, I would have even just months ago, this is it's it's um, I suppose I went through a bit of an awakening myself, although I've always been aware. I mean, in my journalistic history, I've, I was covered Russia, North Korea. So I've certainly not been unaware of the threat of global communism. But I just didn't realize because I've been living out of the country for the better part of 20 years. I honestly didn't. Re- mostly Asia mostly Asia. Um, And I just didn't realize how bad it was in the United States. And then also, politically speaking, I I probably would have, if you had asked me then, I would have said I'm more to the left. And so there's a bias that comes with that in thinking that the left is not as bad as the right says it is, of course, right? right? They're exaggerating. So of course, they're going to say Democrats are a bunch of communists. And in fact, they do say that. And in fact, it is often completely wrong, but it's not always wrong. There are actually some outspoken socialists who are truly socialist in the deepest sense of the word and intend things that are quite harmful. And I thought, But they're not the worst. So this is, I I go over this in my book and it's actually in the content that we had to cut from the documentary because the documentary, we had like three hours of content. We had to whittle that down a little bit. But I, I, there's five levels of communist enablers that I talk about. Mm. And some of the some of the categories, it was J. J. Edgar Hoover that came up with them. I just added a couple. Um, he he had avowed communists, and then fellow travelers, which would be the socialists, the leftists, and progressives, and then dupes. And I add two more um, categories of groups of people that enable the communist agendas in America. I, the very top is actually the the puppet masters and money bags who are not themselves communists. They're usually monopoly, monopolistic capitalists um, that oh. fund, they fund the whole thing. And we have your Bill Gates, you have your Rockefeller Foundation, your Carnegie Foundation. Mm. Um, because it's a power grab and it's a way to right. centralize their, keep the centralized power going for them. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. There has been some research done that a significant part, one of the largest donors, I believe, to the Black Lives Matter movement and to the police abolition movements was um, was a gentleman who is who has um, investments in private policing. So he's a capitalist funding communists, mm-hmm. capitalist purposes, because, you know, so it's it's well, the game is much deeper, more complicated than I think the, the BLM crowd understands. Yeah, it was capitalists there. who funded Lenin. It was American and German capitalists, big business owners that that funded Lenin. They funded the Bolshevik Revolution. So mm-hmm. that goes back that you can look at the book uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, mm-hmm. um, which is mostly primary sources in that book. Um, but so you have the puppet masters and money bags. Then you have your avowed communists. We only have a few of those openly avowed communists. Then you have this huge group of the the so, the socialists, progressives, and leftists that they work with the few avowed communists because they they don't want a communist revolution. They don't like communism, but they agree with a lot of the things that the communists say. So they will work together and they are more effective at pushing us further left and further towards communism than the avowed communists. Then you have the vast swaths of dupes and I separate them into two categories. Level one dupes are people who fall for the slogans. They, They fall for diversity, equity, and inclusion because that's the nice thing to do they fall for the weaponization of empathy, which is what communists exploit Americans. Americans are are a people who care about the underprivileged. We are, we care, we don't want people being trampled under in general in America. 
Right. Most Americans can't not stand racism. It, we don't like any of that stuff. And so there's a weaponization of our empathy. And so you have your level one dupes that, yes, we're going to, we have to let men in girls' locker rooms because it's, that's inclusion. And then you have your level two dupes. And that would be the group of large group of people who see something wrong with all of this, but they're too scared to speak out about it because they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to be called a bigot, but they also enable the communist agendas. So we need to make sure that if we are falling into any one of those categories, we remove ourselves. Would the would the last group be what Nixon referred to as the silent majority in a, in a sense? Like they're, they're they're kind of they're kind of turned on a little bit, but they're yeah. just not speaking up. Yeah, and these are the people that I'm hoping to reach with my documentary the most. Um, I'm I don't think that I'm gonna reach very many avowed communists. Probably not going to reach too many um, fellow travelers either. But if we can wake up more of the people, and not just wake up, but really empower with with knowledge and truth, um, that silent majority for a mass awakening, this will take millions of us working together to to accomplish this. Um, yeah, that is that is how we can nullify their agendas, or at least another um, another one of the uh, episodes that I did that you might find interesting is titled uh, "Radical and Back Again," which is about a young scientist who was, uh, I suppose, uh, maybe um, a fellow traveler, uh, if not an avowed uh, communist. I'm not sure exactly if what she would, how she would describe herself, but she was all the way on the, on the edge, reached the cliff of the edge and was turned around. And I found it quite inspiring by the power of her own curiosity and intellect and being exposed to um, rational discourse online and with with content such as what you're putting out. So, you know, just to let you know that it does reach people and it does turn people around. It, you can actually expose people to meaningful uh, discourse and information. And I agree with you, it's probably not going to be very many, but it sort of reminds me of the story of the guy on the beach with the with the starfish, you know, that one. And he's like throwing them back. And the other guy's like, what do you, what's the point? There's too many. It doesn't make a difference. And he throws another one and he's like, it made a difference to that one. Exactly. And I think even if you just get one or two people like this scientist that I'm referring to, um, you know, you get through to them, but then as you go down the levels, I think you start to capture more and more people. Obviously you get more, uh, I'm trying to think where I would have fallen <laughs> in the, in the, hopefully, Closer to the bottom, but I don't know. Uh, but one of my awakenings was um, one of my awakenings was when I recently uh, moved to Seattle, which I knew by reputation as being left, but I also understood that to be a good thing, and that and that I would be and that I would fit in mm -hmm. because I thought that by left it meant I don't know something open minded. Yes, but also closer to my values, closer to, I suppose, what is traditional classic left. And then, of course, I knew there's like a lot of, uh, you know, crazies out there. And I'm sure there's some communists somewhere in Seattle, I guess. I don't know. And then I got out of there and I realized it's a lot more left than I thought it was. You have city council socialists on city. You have, I mean, um, I took a position at a newspaper and was fired for criticizing Vladimir Lenin. Okay. I went to a bar shortly after that happened, uh, unrelated, and the bartender uh, 
we got into a conversation and he ends up telling me that he's a communist and we are essentially kicked out of the bar for not being communist in the United States of America in 2023. And I'm standing on the sidewalk like, did this just happen? Was that, is this even legal? And, and my friend was like, yeah, I, I think they can kick you out for any reason, but like, because you're not a communist, like it's just, it's, it's a lot deeper. And the problem is um, it's more embedded. Yeah, uh, it's more it's it's more deeply embedded, and it's reached a level that is higher than I had imagined. They're radicalizing the young people now, especially in places like that, and you know, then you you have the extreme version of that with Antifa and such. But they're radicalizing more and more and destabilizing. They're working to destabilize this rising generation like none other before in America. Mm. And, it seems to be having an effect. I mean, yeah. I saw, I mean, I think one of the big awakenings, as I mentioned earlier, was October 7th and you see the people coming out and they're all, you know, and I think, I honestly uh, think that part of the attraction for a lot of these people is that there is a communist element to the Palestinian nationalist movement. Oh yeah. And that's part of what's capturing them. Now you have, you know, TikTok historians telling us that Osama bin Laden was right actually. Mm -hmm. And that and it all ties back into this anti-capitalist anti-western it's almost enough for them i think that hamas is anti-us yeah that, that's like 50 percent of it right there for a oh, lot yeah. of them. It's just they're yep. like oh okay i mean they're they're it's unreal. do you did you ever see this video clip and I, I i unfortunately i don't remember the name of this soviet analyst who's describing the way that you would tear down the United States would be by Yuri Vyazmyanov? Yes. 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 Yep. yep. And 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 what is it that he says would you would you mind sort of um Yeah, I I just have a few minutes left, but he he talks about he was a KGB propagandist for the Soviet Union uh, operating in India and he defected in the late 70s to the West. He tried to warn America and the West because he understood the playbook very well of 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 subversion um, and of communist subversion. And so there's four steps to subvert a society to communism. Step one is demoralization. And he said it takes between 15 or 20 years, at least one generation of students where you're in the schools and you're, you're making them have, um, warm up to socialism. And he's like, and this interview with Yuri Biesmanov was in 1984. He said that in 1984, America was way overfulfilled with demoralization. Like it was like such a raving success that the, the KGB was like astonished. Um, step two, and that takes again, 15 to 20 years to demoralize. Step two is, um, let me get my steps straight. Destabilization. Destabilization takes two to five years, he says, to destabilize a nation. I believe that destabilization began in 2020 for America in the West, um, where you destabilize, um, you know, the different systems, their, their border, you have um, infrastructure, you have um, international relations and all these major, their energy, you destabilize those major pillars of society. Step three is crisis. Crisis is six weeks to take over and have a coup. Uh, and then step four is normalization. That's when you execute the dissidents. That's when you're implementing communism. It's already taken hold. So the long game is already played out in America. We're in the midst right now of a destabilization. 
crisis, you know, in some ways, I think they've mashed them all together with America, because in some ways, I think we've already had our coup. They just can't act like it because too many Americans are armed. Um, We already have had a takeover of our government, I think. And then they're already trying to normalize us. So perhaps they're doing all of these four steps at once. But either way, it does not look good. And we need a mass awakening ASAP. Mm. Um, wow. Thank you so much for your time. And where can people go to see the film or to get your book? Yeah, go to beneathsheepsclothing.movie and you can watch the, uh, the intro to the film and also some reviews are there. Uh, we had a trailer um, also on Rumble that had to be YouTube. Took our trailer off with um, the song Creep in it, but you can watch that on my Rumble. Um, you just look up Beneath Sheep's Clothing on Rumble. The film okay, I'll will put be released. The notes. Yeah, Beneath Sheep's Clothing will be um, premiered online in early spring, and we'll have it on our website. We're selling tickets now for twelve bucks on Beneath Sheep's Clothing movie. Also, we'll have it on Rumble, and um, my book is also there's a link to buy it there. And um, I hope people will take a look at the intro, take a look at the trailer on Rumble, and um, get the, watch the movie when it's out. Yeah, indeed. I hope they will. I'm looking forward to it myself. And um, I think you're doing important work. And I think it's a message that we have to keep repeating enough times and hope that people start to um, pay attention before, unfortunately, before it's too late. Right. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Hey, bye. Thanks.